In the case of nuclear or radiological fallout, people living around potential targets such as military bases and chemical plants may be advised to evacuate. Well, hello, Sublation Media viewers and listeners and readers and people. Uh, this is Wednesday, uh, and we have a special edition of the Sublation Magazine show. Uh, in fact, what this really is, is is going to be a live-streamed edition of uh, Diet Soap. Um, it's a crossover. Rather than, <laughs> yeah, it's a crossover. Rather than... Um, uh, reading uh, out uh, a segment on the news and then interviewing uh, uh, someone from Sublation Magazine, um, an author who's written an essay for us. I'm just going to be talking to Ashley Frawley about her her upcoming book, which which has been drawing her away from the, the <laughs> everything, show. everything meaningful Every in my life. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, remind me of the the title of your book. It's in the description for the uh, and there's a link to it in the description for this video, but. Um, what is the title of your book again so the title of the book is significant emotions uh rhetoric and uh, rhetoric and social problems in a vulnerable age i can never remember the subtitle because i changed it like three times um and if you look at it on amazon it is entirely different uh what i actually wrote in <laughs> in comparison to what's actually up there um I, I you know that's the way that it is when you you write a book you have all these kinds of ideas and you've done a, a, your research but inevitably in the writing you find that perhaps what you thought was going on is not exactly what's going on so the book that i end up writing is just a little bit different than is listed there and it's called significant emotions mm-hmm I mean, I'm and it's a, it's, I'm sorry for my <laughs> sniffliness. I'm, I'm quite sick at the moment. <laughs> my, uh, you know, so the children, their first week of school, and they just they bring everything home with them. I love them, but they would be wonderful if they didn't bring every parasite. <laughs> we can, we can talk about our kids in the parrot room because I have a story about this morning trying to get my kid to go to school. Um, but yeah, so uh, significant emotions. Um, you know, I, I've read some of the book. I read. You, you recommended I read chapter two. I also read an article you wrote about um, mindfulness. And I have a whole bunch of different questions sort of, I think, on the periphery of, of, of your book, really, because I'm, I'm reading bits and pieces as I try to catch up for today's stream. Um, but I just thought, to begin with, that I'd mentioned that I think your book is really important, actually, um, especially in the context of the war in Ukraine. Uh, because I think it's, uh, it's obvious that this tendency to understand social problems as arising from our emotions um, can lead to truly dire and uh, kind of authoritarian and very limited uh, perspectives and outcomes. So, um, you know, as an example, the way in which people uh, today are talking about the conflict in Ukraine and the an invasion of Ukraine as coming down to Putin's character and his uh you know his personal insanity um you can call him a madman can't be negotiated with <clears throat> and uh, it, it's clear to me that by framing the question of ukraine in terms of putin's emotions and his personality <clears throat> what we're doing is limiting our ability to think about the consequences of what's happening there um Instead, we're having the sort of emotional reaction. Um, I know that 
when you started writing this book, this hadn't, you know, the invasion hadn't happened, but would you say that this is a kind of example kind of, uh, of the, of the problem of putting emotions at the center of politics that, that comes to mind for you, or is it a good example to, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I think the the story that I tell in the book and how I try to explain these kinds of fads of emotions, uh, therapeutic fad waves, as I call them. I'm not very good at coining terms. But anyways, mm -hmm. um, the, the story that I tell that underlies why all of this is happening, I think, is the story of our present impasse, which is that we are not we have not been able to build a bridge between what is and what ought to be. And even between what is and um, what we've been promised as mm -hmm. you know, the rights and, and so on of, of capitalism and, and what it's all about, um, there's a huge gap between these two things. And this gap has troubled people almost since the very beginning, almost since the, well, not almost, definitely since the French Revolution. Um, where, you know, someone like um, Thomas Malthus was looking at the, uh, sorry, I have to get a tissue. I'm so sorry. I know. We're That's okay. <laughs> That's give, okay. I, I can, I can um, edit it uh, later, but I won't. Um, but yeah, so, well, I'm going to talk uh, as you're uh, getting your tissue and just say that um, uh, the, what came to mind uh, also was Francis Fukuyama and the the end of history thesis um again it's in the context of ukraine because you know a, as uh, the soviet union collapsed and and the war the the wall in uh berlin came down or in, Germ in germany came yeah. down uh fukuyama kind of promised but but he actually stated it as if it was an accomplished fact that liberal democracy and open trade and uh and and civil liberties were going to be what defined the future that we had reached the end of history. And, uh, obviously that didn't come to pass. Obviously yeah. the, 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 the fact that the Soviet union, uh, had, had gone away, didn't change what was, I guess, a conflict based on other terms and not just strictly ideology. Um, but if he had put that forward as a promise, as something that we could potentially try to reach towards, something that had not been achieved, that something was not already an accomplished fact, then it would have, been, I think, been a more honest book, and it would have led to more a, a deeper uh, understanding and the the need to think through well the reality of where we were, rather than simply. <clears throat> and the other thing about, for instance, Fukuyama is the obstacles that he did mention that might be put in our way were all about people's dissatisfaction or their tendency to want to be um, dominant or uh, have social prestige or or the, the, the possibility of a populist um, uprising based on some individual's particular quirks or desires or emotions. It was not about structural difficulties within the liberal establishment itself. Anyway, <clears throat> I'm just filling well, up the airtime that you, but, but. Um, I know, I'm so sorry for doing that to you, but no, well, the thing with, um, with Fukuyama is that it's sort of a, 
it's not something to be celebrated necessarily, the end of history. He says the end of history would be a very sad time, right? This is the end of all the great uh, visions and quests and so on. It's kind of like, well, this is this is it and there's nothing beyond this. Um, and, and same with Karl Popper. Well, Karl Popper is more triumphant. But um, this idea that all that we really can do is piecemeal democratic reform. And while that's necessary and the only thing really possible, that it quells that desire for something bigger and something heroic and all of these sorts of things. Um, but uh, I think, yeah, I mean, basically, this is the same conversation we've been having since the late 18th century. It's, look, there is a gap between these ideals um, and our reality. And there were those who wanted to transcend that gap, um, who saw it as something that was structural, as something in the system itself. You know, someone like obviously Karl Marx would say that, um, look, we, we, we need another revolution to make these ideals a reality. Um, and then someone like Thomas Malthus would say, and did say, no, the gap is natural. It is, it is a void that reflects a void within us. <laughs> and we. it's always going to be this way. So, for instance, I talked about this last week in the Parrot Room, but um, someone like um, Condorcet was writing at the, well, during the French Revolution, during the terror. And he is so excited. He sees like this future where we may not even die anymore. Like he's, he's like, this, it's just endless improvement. Things are going to get better and better and better. Um, and, you know, three years after he died, Thomas Malthus writes this, uh, his essay on, on, on population famously in response to him. And he's like, you know, he's basically very disparaging. He says, oh, this is all very cute and so on. But the reason why we have not been able to reach these ideals, like, look, you talk about, you know, brotherhood, I see war. You talk about equality, I see inequality. Why? Because that's just the way things are. That's, that's us. It's our human nature. The, it can never be bridged. We can never move beyond that because the limitation is in us. It's all about sex and food. And these two things will just cancel each other out forever and ever and ever. Don't bother trying. And, you know, triumphant or sad and mourning, these people are asking us to live within the gap, to accept it, to naturalize it um, as an outgrowth of an eternal human nature. Um, and I think a lot of these therapeutic fads are these ways of kind of offering us something uh, within the within the within that gap. You know, like we see the future and it's possible, but we've not been able to figure out a way to get there. And they're like, no, it's because of us. We have primitive brains and the and the future is just going so fast. They keep talking about this in these mindfulness discourses in one of the chapters of my book um, that I examine. They're like, the pace of change and technology is just too fast for us. It's too much. Our primitive brains can't handle it. So it's like history is moving, but human beings don't. Um, and this like move into the future becomes a problem, a social problem that needs to be broached by um, trying to give people all of these methods for living in the moment, for you know trying to find a space, um, trying to find some rest. And you can see this like dynamic between a desire for stasis and the ceaseless change um, throughout a lot of these discourses um, where they're looking for a way to kind of like step out of things because we're moving, we are moving toward a future, but we don't have, it's not a future that human beings can control. We've lost that kind of uh, narrative. And so it's um, become about like um, trying to hold on to the present uh, against everything. It's a very scary kind of moment that we find ourselves in, you know, where all that is solid melts into air, um, but there's no human subject that's capable of 
anchoring our goals and our our activities in the future and moving toward that. Yeah, you you mentioned in your book that. that that the that the Enlightenment philosophers, the the optimists, um, saw the realm of what you know what saw what was possible greatly expanded. That um, in the past, you know, like the Greeks had to resign themselves to their fate. They lived in a society which had uh, <clears throat> natural or divine principles that even the gods were subjected to. Um, but after the Industrial Revolution, particularly, the po- what was possible seemed to be infinite. Um, but then <clears throat> that that very, became a bad thing. <laughs> yeah, that very open possibility, that very industriousness seemed to turn against people. I mean, in the mindfulness discourse, you mentioned that, you know, it's a very process of our own productivity and cultural change that we can't uh, keep up with, that we're always Mm -hmm. um, uh, kind of shocked by or or suppressed by or traumatized by. Um, Mm. And uh, so uh, I guess my question would be, uh, I'm going to go to the mindfulness thing. The the, I think there's some validity to the idea that people find themselves falling behind the changes in society, that, you know, especially older people, but everyone. And um, it it seems to me that uh, something like mindfulness or uh, cognitive behavioral therapy or some other kind of techniques of of emotional control and and um, regul- self-regulation might not be an entirely bad thing in the face of of that uh, of that problem. I just wonder how did mindfulness, which is like it is about creating self-control and self-discipline and positive feelings, so you can overcome challenges. How did that turn into? Uh, um, a political project that limited the horizon of possibility rather than just being a tool in your in your box to overcome difficulties because there this this it does the same thing that a lot of these discourses do from self esteem to happiness to mindfulness and so on is that they always posit some they they insert themselves advocates will insert the new concept between the subject and social change and there will be some big problem in the world some wicked issue something we've not been able to solve and they'll say we'll never be able to broach this until we first inculcate x self-esteem, until we give people self-esteem. You know, Gloria Steinem was saying, um, until we give women the self-esteem, the self-efficacy to stand up to men, we will never blah, 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 we'll never overcome the patriarchy. Um, Until we teach children how to be happy, how can we expect them to go on to learn? They need to learn how to learn. And um, how can we have world peace until we, (laughs) uh, literally, mindfulness will bring world peace is one of these things that um, mm-hmm. John Kabat-Zinn would say early on, that sort of guru of the mindfulness movement, until we can go into the subject and inculcate some kind of um, subjectivity that's missing or that's causing these problems. And as mindfulness kind of went out into all of these different institutions, into prisons, into schools, um, you know, Kabat-Zinn observing this goes, I'm, I'm really excited. This is a, a parliamentary committee in the UK on mindfulness. Um, and he says, I'm very excited about these developments because finally we're getting to the problem, the, the, we're getting to social problems at their root, at their heart, at the level of the human mind. 
So it becomes this discourse about, well, why do we have all these problems? Why can't we solve them? Well, because there's something within the subject that's broken. And until we go in and fix that, we'll never be able to solve these problems. But of course, the reason why we have these problems is not because of something wrong with us. You don't need to invoke human irrationality to understand economic crisis. You know, Marx doesn't invoke people being mean and greedy, as I go into this big thing in the book about Marx's idea of greed. Um, he doesn't need to invoke that to understand um, these crises. Even if everybody acted per perfectly rationally, we would still have these problems. Um, but they need, they will invoke this as an explanation for why things go wrong. And then, of course, when the uh, uh, intervention doesn't work and we still have these problems, they don't then question, oh, well, maybe I've misunderstood the problem. They question the human subject even more. Wow, human beings are even more messed up than I thought. The problem is much deeper than I thought. We have to go into childhood. We have to go to mothers. We have to go to pregnant mothers. We have to go to women before they are even pregnant <laughs> to ensure that we inculcate them with the right ways of doing things because they're making the wrong choices. Um, I don't know how deeply you want me to go into this, but um, well, you know, I yeah, I use the representative anecdote of Wilfredo Pareto. I have a bit of an obsession with Pareto, and I had mm -hmm. really wanted to go quite deeply into his work, but unfortunately, I have to stop this book from getting away from me <laughs> to get mm -hmm. it done at some point. But one day, I'd like to do more of a study of Pareto because I think he's he's a representative anecdote of our time. So he uh, uh, do he was an engineer initially, and he took all of these equations from engineering from the natural world and applied them to economics. And if you look at their underlying logic, it's actually insane. <laughs> it is insane that anybody is using this to understand human economic systems. It's nuts. It's nuts. And they're, they're not really using it to understand human economic systems. That's the, that's the trick, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that he's like, it's like an attraction between objects. And you can do all these equations to find out this like attraction between all of these different objects. But anyways, he comes up with these complex mathematical equations that shows the that capitalism works in equilibrium. But then, so it's beautiful, it's wonderful, it all works. But then he looks out into the world and he doesn't see that. He doesn't see capitalism in equilibrium. He keeps he sees people screwing around with the market all the time. And he's like, stop it. And see the difference between someone like Pareto and a classical uh, uh, liberal economist like um, uh, Adam Smith or or, um, or, or David Ricardo. Ricardo is that they uh, accepted that there were some things that grew out of the capitalist system that, for instance, monopoly or the falling rate of profit, these things were endemic to some process within capitalism. And the question was, how do we explain that? As time goes on, um, neoclassicals deny this. They, Because they've created these equations, it shows that the whole thing should work. Any kind of crisis or problem has to be introduced from the outside. The system is too perfect for us. We are the problem. We human beings are all too human. And so this expands the purview. Obviously, this is Foucault's uh, lectures on biopolitics. So this expands the purview of surveillance um, to human beings, to institutions, because they're the ones who are screwing things up. They're the ones who are introducing monopoly and so on. Um, and so Pareto later in life became obsessed with um, sociology. But of course, this is, his sociology is like some social psychology, a kind of biologized, naturalized understanding of human beings. And he's very much a critic of the notion of human rationality. 
Um, he says, you know, we're not we're not rational. We, you, I'm sure people will recognize this because the, there's all these things in the newspapers every now and then that prove that this is correct, that actually human beings are not rational. We immediately react to something and then we justify it after the fact. You can find that in Pareto's work as well. Um, we're just driven by sentiments and emotion. And it, the, the thin veil of rationality is just that, a thin veil. Mm. Um, and so instead of looking at his model and saying, hey, maybe I've got this wrong, <laughs> Pareto looks at the human subject and says, no, you've got it wrong. You're wrong. Um, instead of jettisoning his models, he jettisons the human subject, the rational human subject. And this is what mm. we've done in society. Okay. Instead of saying, mm. well, look, maybe we've misunderstood the problem. We're saying, no, actually, it's human beings. We're the problem. All right. I have a, there's a question here in the comments. I'm going to throw up on the screen here. Um, uh, someone says, why doesn't Ashley's logic about Pareto's failings also apply to Stalin and therefore communism? I'm going to reframe that and say, make it this question, which is, it does apply. Yeah, it probably does apply to Stalin um, who did uh, dream of changing human subjectivity, I believe. And, and yeah. certainly was, uh, yeah, when this is, this is what part. happens when the system fails, they blame the people. <laughs> it's but, the last but, Death it apply of a dying to, system. It doesn't apply to Marx's critique of political economy, right? Which no. means, you know, it may no, not apply he to wasn't communism system either. Building. Well, right. yeah, I mean, as a stage in history, as opposed to like a, an actually really existing project that ultimately didn't work. Um, well, this, again, is the issue that we're, we're kind of in at the moment. Because we have failed to find a solution, we've not been able to organize. Mean, kind of know the market is messed up. We kind of know, like even these people, like even these, um, I don't know what to call them, neoliberal or post-liberal to avoid confusing people, but mm. even they will like critique the market, you know? Um, they mean like a critique of human beings, but nonetheless, like everyone kind of knows that we're screwed, but we've not been able to move beyond this impasse. We tried to organize things in a different way and it didn't work. It produced the same kind of results. Um, and so the, our, we have met with the need to move beyond the present moment. And mm -hmm. we haven't been able to find a solution for that. And so what we've done is we've given up on that project altogether and have resigned ourselves to living in the void, the void between what is and what ought to be. And I kind of, I put out this tweet, this super cryptic tweet recently, but it really, this is what I see in my mind when I read these like discourses that I've been studying. It's like, no, no, it's a great void. It's not that bad. It's it's fine. We can put some curtains up. We can put a prayer mat down, you know, you can learn to live within it. Oh, is it difficult? Is it difficult to live within this void with nothing to live for? It must be because there's something in your primitive brain <laughs> that makes it so hard. Um, and of course, uh, Marshall Berman, who I love and um, highly recommend everybody read every word he ever wrote. Um, but he always, he, he criticized uh, Blaise Pascal. He said, um, instead of, you know, when Blaise Pascal said, I believe that all problems come down to the fact that man is not able to sit quietly in one room. Um, he uses Voltaire, Berman uses Voltaire to respond. Well, perhaps the fact that we can't sit quietly in one room is because it's not normal to do that. <laughs> and Voltaire says, oh, isn't it amazing to think that man's senses, so perfectly attuned to action, are simply meant for contemplation. But this is what we're asked to do now, that you know, the only kind of freedom you can have is in your head. And even that, you're not really able to, to realize. See, the, the first step in these discourses is not sort of answering a problem necessarily, but convincing people that there's something wrong with them. 
um, that they're that they're weak subjects. And in fact, the fact the fact they don't realize this is also the root of problems. That we we uh, may silly us engage in self-reliance without realizing that actually we cannot we do we lack the capacity to be autonomous subjects actually we must be heteronomous subjects we have to have our will carefully shaped by outside authorities lest we go astray and make the wrong choices and cause social problems this idea that uh, human beings should be content and able to just sit quietly in a room by themselves makes me kind of think about you know, what, what, what's the ultimate aim socially there? Is it to, to make every human being content to be imprisoned, to be in a cage, to be in solitary confinement? It's not you know. so bad. You can put a prayer mat down, get some nice curtains, mm-hmm. and you can have an internet connection, and it'll be right. fine. Well, put the internet connection, maybe, you know, that's actually is the way I'm living right now. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it, I just... Um, I, I can't help but notice that the the pessimism about human rationality seems to me to be also a way to screen out or hide or obscure the real rationality behind um, many social problems. Yes. You know, like, again, to go back to Ukraine, the, this idea that Putin is a madman and that or that war is inevitable, that people are just always in conflict. Um, it hides the fact that <clears throat> there were some uh, conscious, rational policy decisions that were made over and over again after the fall of the Soviet Union and after the end of the Cold War that led to this moment and that are continuing to lead to a, a deepening uh, conflict and, and crisis and potential you know, worldwide cataclysmic nuclear devastation like the. the there, but that it is not simply a matter of like, oh, well, what we need to do is get Putin on the couch or or uh, get uh, um, Biden some really good uh, anti-Alzheimer's drugs or something. No, there's a there is a rational policy uh, which is not rational or reasonable in the sense of being what would be best for uh, for all, for everyone. But it is what is seen to be in the interest of U.S. power. To perpetuate mm-hmm. this conflict in Ukraine, and yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely, these are like you don't need again. You don't need to invoke somebody's like inner psychological turmoil <laughs> to understand global uh, global war, global warfare. Um, it is the outcome of people acting rationally in relation to what they perceive to be their interests. Anyway, um, people do try to solve problems when they act in the world. And these things come up against each other within a, you know, there are some people who are, whose interests lie in a system that can no longer continue, in my opinion, um, without global warfare, right? Mm-hmm. And so these, the, um, the conglomeration of all of these interests leads us down this horrifying road that nobody wants, right? Nobody wants to blow up the world. <laughs> um, but this is the outcome of many, many people acting rationally. Uh, at the individual level or at the level of their class or their group. 
Um, so you don't need to understand that in terms of people's inner psychological problems, and it can't be solved there either. But increasingly, that's what we're trying to do. This is um, the idea is that all of these conflicts, all of these things happen because people are simply making the wrong choices. And if we could just get them to make the right choices, because they're they're messed up, right? They've chosen wrong. Um, but then, you know, okay, if that was the case, we might find a few people. Yeah, of course, a few people will be messed up. But hundreds of thousands and millions of people doing something tells us that there's a process there. Um, and this is what I was trying to say when we uh, were talking to to John Bunch. It was a, a very interesting conversation. Uh, let's talk to him again, actually, um, where, uh, you know, I was saying that the best sociological studies are the ones that when everyone just keeps repeating something over and over and over again, oh, it's so irrational, it's so irrational. Like, oh, why do poor people smoke? Oh, it's so irrational. But you actually like do studies and talk to them. You find that they do have a rationale that it is possible to rationally choose short-term enjoyment over long-term gain that that particular this idea that you're going to win in the future is a very bourgeois or petty bourgeois thing because yeah if you hold out good things happen but when you're poor no when you hold out you may not enjoy like it may not happen and so it makes sense like when you can't afford to go to the opera and that sort of thing to like have a ready meal and a big tv and and it makes sense within that context it's not people's like um stupidity or lack of mindful awareness of their surroundings that leads to that it, it might be for some people but not for mm. humongous numbers of people we can't invoke some sort of psychological um deficit to explain large-scale uh, uh sociological processes but this what i've called in another publication with daniel Nering, um a psychological imagination increasingly encourages us to do that how did the psychological imagination that you just mentioned take hold. I mean, you, you, I think you, one of the, the benefits of reading your book will be that you lay out sort of a, a timeline or a development of this approach to solving social problems. And it does seem to me that um, like Christopher Lash in the seventies had a critique of therapy culture or the, or the approach to culture. Solving, of narcissism, yeah. yeah. The culture of narcissism, which had to do with the therapeutic model being the only model for solving social change or one of the yeah. dominant models. Um, and, and yet it seems to me that it's even deepened since then. And, and mm -hmm. uh, I mean, perhaps, perhaps I'm just, you know, putting on rose colored glasses to view the past, but uh, it, it does seem to me to be worse today. How do you think that it is that this therapeutic model or this psychological imagination has, has become so dominant? Um, well, it's a, Part of it is that story that I just told you with the gap and the need to kind of explain that and the mm. fact that it can't be within the social structures. And even if it is within the social structures, we can't change those. Um, and so it's got to be something either you give people coping skills um, to live dangerously, to live never to act dangerously, but to live in a dangerous world and to accept risk, but never to act in risky ways. Either you do that or you um, try to solve the problems through something at uh, a psychological level. And increasingly, as I mentioned, as, the, as this hasn't been successful, people have um, moved more toward the coping kind of uh, mm -hmm. what uh, Chandler calls the sort of resilience paradigm, not only Chandler, but it's a very good book that I recommend where he explores this in relation to resilience, where it's like, okay, yes, there are all these problems and so on, we probably can't solve them. <laughs> so we have to kind of like, uh, shore people up to accept that actually if they try to make choices, they try to act autonomously, they're, they're going to create all sorts of risks, 
they better not do that, they better stop doing that. Um, they have to understand that actually they can't attack, um, act autonomously. They are weak subjects. So this is important to understand because people will always say, oh, well, this is like trying to create the ideal neoliberal subject that self-governs and doesn't need the government. No, it's not about that. It's about creating a weak subject. That's why the first claims are always about destroying the subject. You must understand, actually, you think you're eating that cookie because you want it. No, no, no. You're amygdala. You know, there's always some something where it's like you think you're rational, but actually you're not. And this is the problem. Yeah, the problem is that. Um, you know, you, when you are able to, when you are acting rationally, or sorry, when you think you're acting rationally, you're actually not, and you're going to create all these problems. Um, yeah. So that's a whole big part of it. Um, but another part of it, too, is just obviously this exhaustion with um, the 20th century and all of these things that happened that, you know, when we tried to take the reins of history, uh, Things went really, really wrong. <laughs> and you can see this palpable sense of exhaustion very, very early on. Um, I mentioned a long time ago that I was doing this study of student newspapers, um, which I never really finished, but I, it was very interesting where you could see like in the 1930s, it was highly, students were highly, highly politicized in the sense of like, uh, we're, we're the leaders of tomorrow. We got to figure out how to organize things. Should we organize things using socialism? Should we do this? And then in like, 1948, like right after the war, it's like, so wisdom of the East, uh, <laughs> how can I find my own personal kind of way out of this? Uh, you can see like it's almost immediate. Now, I have been saying that for a long time, but one thing that I found kind of interesting, and this is really controversial and I didn't put it in the book, but it's just a thread that I find very interesting, is that I thought I, I dated this kind of pessimism and this rise of like, you know, like Buddhism as a solution to social, as uh, Western problems, this kind of thing. And meditation becomes very powerful. And it's all about like personal um, kind of uh, forms of, you know, the personal is political, all of that. I dated that directly to the post-war period, right after the Second World War. And a lot of people have done that. Obviously, Daniel Bell is another person, uh, the end of ideology. Mm. But um, the more that I looked into the rise of Buddhism in the West, the more I realized that it was a continuation of this, well, I make this argument in the book, but I don't go this far, but it's a continuation of this sort of romantic rejection of capitalism, but it's mm. almost like it's triumph. Um, that that, that uh, rom the romantic reaction to capitalism, which rejected its sterile quantification, this sort of thing, um, this was always a, you know, capitalism's legitimate antithesis, Marx calls it. Um, and it's very evident in the Nazis. <laughs> Obviously, you know, they like they, they, they took the swastika from Buddhism that, you know, um, Heinrich Himmler apparently carried around a copy of the Bhagavad Gita. They got their Nazi soldiers to do yoga, this sort of thing. It's very interesting, like flirtation with the wisdom of the East. And some of the first claims makers for Buddhism in America had been Nazis. <laughs> now, uh, yes, now repentant Nazis who so very badly suffered for what they did, I will say. Um, just like Hannah Arendt's unthinking people, you know, they just, if you read the story of like Ruth Dennison, for example, um, and she was like a teacher during um, 
the second world war and she was just like yep yeah, okay here's my curriculum i'm just going to teach it as best i can <laughs> you know? wow. oh all of history has changed i guess that's fine uh oh spiritualism and us dancing in a forest to our germanic ancestors sounds great let's do that um she just didn't think oh look i've got this farm in poland now empty <laughs> Weird. Uh, let's go to a wedding there you know she just didn't think at all and that weird kind of unthinkingness seems to kind of be a theme in her life, but she paid hardcore. Like, I must say, I'm not blaming her. She went through mm. horrific things in the post-war period. Anyways, um, but, you know, she had been a Nazi. And it's like she says right from the very beginning uh, that you know, she's totally unrepentant about the kind of romanticism that drew her to Nazism. It was a, this beautiful thing. And she talks about it really, really fondly. And so I think that there, that this... Um, um, romantic current. Now, the bit that I said was like going too far, I was linking it to Nazism. But generally, the kind of romantic reaction has become extremely powerful. And it's become even more powerful as liberalism proper has died. I think we all want to talk about liberals and so on. But in terms of like, uh, you know, classical liberal ideals, I don't think anyone really truly believes in these anymore. Um, and so this if you like most of the opposition is between a leftish version of what had been the right-wing reaction to the French revolution and a left-wing version of it. Um, and that kind of liberal uh, activism that looked toward the future and human beings role in it has been diminished greatly. And I think that these, these sorts of things, this, this psychological imagination, which seeks to reconnect us to what really matters that is highly naturalized um, that roots social problems in our own human nature, that promises a, an escape in imagination. There's a ton of magic in these discourses as well. People talk about, you know, Kabat-Zinn says that mindfulness came to him in a vision while he was meditating. Um, you know, it's this re-enchantment of life um, that comes mm -hmm. about when, uh, against this sort of widespread rejection of quantification because we've not been able to sublate, we've not been able to move beyond it, we've not been able to like take things to a higher level, we've not been able to take control of the future. And so the answer is to uh, accept that and accept that as an outgrowth of just the limits of human nature and humanity. And so I think this is why it's become really powerful and I think its origins go all the way back, straight back to the, the French Revolution. I'm reminded of this painting here by William Blake uh, called The Ancient of Days, which is uh, uh, actually a, an ironic painting of um, uh, d dismissing or criticizing the notion that God uh, would be some sort of mathematician or, you know, would be setting up the mechanism of the world. There he's God's shown holding a compass here in this William Blake painting um, and the romantic re rejection of the enlightenment based on the way it reduced everything down to the quantifiable and the, and the rational or what can be to down to the level of what can be rationalized. Um, it, you know, it does. Well, first of all, I think the paintings of William Blake are quite beautiful and, and charming and, and, you know, great works of art. Um, but it also, you know, there's some appeal to that criticism. There's some truth that criticism but yes, what's interesting about, but what's interesting with mu like the mindfulness project is the way in which it it's it, it participates in the very scientism that the romantics were trying to reject yeah right um marries and, them in a way yeah uh and um and 
you know, for, you know, just to throw this in, so did the Nazis, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> One of the, um, oh, no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> one of the things yeah. that, that, that the Enlightenment is sometimes blamed for, this urge towards the rational is sometimes blamed yeah. for, is the Holocaust and the rationalization of the brutality uh, against the Jews um, and the, you know, the, the first one of the first big uses of IBM computers were punch cards mm -hmm. to track the people going in and out of concentration camps. Um, so I'm not I'm not sure what I'm really leading up to here, ex except to say that the romantic rejection of capitalism um, certainly doesn't hasn't led to any uh, sublation of capitalism or, or even any ability to just straight ahead kind of break with capitalism mm -hmm. and the quantification of the world. Um, uh, but I, I, you know, I, I'm going to pretend like I had a question at the end of that. You, well, because the, the idea is like what ends up happening is that people reject things um, in, entirely without seeing the rational kernel that exists. You know, Marx has always says, you know, says that even the, the worst thinkers, I can't remember who he's talking about, but they recognize there's good and bad in everything. And that's like their big insight. And then they don't go beyond that. <laughs> but there's good, there's good and bad in everything, right? So yeah, like within capitalism, science becomes dehumanized and used against us. Uh, but mm. a humanized science is that is put in service of human beings and that recognizes its origin in human thought <laughs> and it's ends where it's going consciously is can be supposedly liberating the problem is that within capitalism we are alienated from our ends from like we can do things if it's profitable we're not able to like just we can't just like tackle climate change in ways that we know scientifically would be possible because we have to do it in a way that would be profitable um, and so this kind of this idea of like, yes, like science allows us to understand those things. Science gives us all of these comforts, but that is not the, that is not the purpose of science within capitalism. Um, but that doesn't mean that science itself is defunct. It means that science within this system has become alienated from us and used against us. So you can see within a lot of these discourses that they rely heavily on science, but it's a weird kind of science. It's not a science that is like technological and creative of something new, you know, like mm -hmm. um, something beyond ourselves, something in the future. It's a science that is uh, portrayed as confirming something that was always there. Um, and it's an increasingly dehumanized science. It's a science without the subject, uh, the subject who wields it. And it, it's, it's very strange because like, even if you look at somebody like Pareto, he's like obsessed with science but he doesn't believe in human rationality. Mm. <laughs> so it's like science without reason. Um, and I don't know if I mentioned, but Pareto also was a proto-fascist. Um, yeah, I, I, I knew that ahead of time, but you didn't mention it, but yes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the, uh, the, was Pareto the one that came up with the 80-20 rule? Am I yeah. Mr. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah it, it, He's been pop re. He's been made popular again in the last few, like maybe last half decade. Yeah, there's like a Pareto revival. Mm -hmm. Um, and business uh, circles, especially. You, I mean, like there are books that are coming out, like things like that. the eighty twenty rule. What you need to know as an entrepreneur, and yeah. it's very tempting if, if you're, you know, I'm working on 
keeping this uh, sublation media business going and like to look at the business literature and think about the 80 20 rule and not and not remind yourself you know that's a fascist idea that's not a that's not a great approach to um to life this this 80 20 rule um somebody which, uh oh sorry go ahead but no go ahead no, um, somebody said, um, oh, the mind wandering is the, I can't find the, the comment now, but the mind, oh, here we go. Mind wandering is what people do on default mode. So this is an interesting thing because you see this a lot, like um, in these mindfulness discourses, they'll say like, oh, your mind will wander. And that's why you have like the object that you bring your, 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 your thoughts back to. And it's like, oh, don't worry. Don't be mad at yourself. Just accept it. Accept that that is you know, part of just our minds wander, um, which in a way is good, but also at the same time, it's like a sign of like human, a kind of inbuilt human weakness that we're supposed to accept instead of like, yes, your mind will wander when you're sitting there doing nothing. <laughs> and you are supposed to like really accept that nothingness. So it's like the, instead of saying like, this is might be the unnaturalness of the void. Instead, it's, um, we throw human beings down into that void where it's like, no, it's actually the problem is you, the problem. And you have to embrace them. And the fact that you can't is a problem with your head, not the problem with the void itself. Right. Um, uh, all, all throughout this, I've been kind of feeling a little bit of uh, cognitive dissonance because, which is another way of, of sub making everything subjective, I suppose, because on the one hand, I agree with everything, you've been arguing but on the other hand it does seem to me that um well i had written this down let me see if i can get to this so it, it seems to me that one of the aims of of psychology say of understanding our human nature has always been to be able to change it personally right like the, if you go into freudian analysis the aim is to for to give the the a patient or the analyst analyst and um the, the tools they need to understand their own patterns of behavior and therefore be free of their symptoms or their trauma and mm -hmm. uh and change their life um so it, it doesn't seem to me to be necessary or natural that a therapeutic or psychological approach to uh, your own life would necessarily lead you to accepting the conditions that you're living with objectively. No, um, and I don't want to make that argument either. That's not what I'm saying either. Yeah. I'm not mm -hmm. saying like, oh, these discourses are bad because they're like a, a tonic or something. I'm just saying that like it, I, what's interesting about them is the story that they tell about social problems, the story that they na narrate, and the fact that people repeat them over and over and over again tells us something about our ethnopsychology, our belief about human beings and what they're capable of. Um, and also about it's narrating this bigger story of humanity of not being able to move forward and trying to make sense of that and explain that. Um, I don't care if people use mindfulness in their lives. Like it might be really useful if people like that. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I, I also enjoy like um, my like indigenous culture. When I go to the reserve, I enjoy that. I don't think it's a pathway to revolution. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I find it interesting how indigenous culture also gets like um, 
used as an explanation for social problems within indigenous communities like we're culturalists and so on and uh, the answer is to like go back in and inculcate culture this kind of thing um, but I'm not saying that this is like a causal mechanism um, it is an invitation to conceive of human subjectivity in weak ways but I don't I don't think people necessarily accept it not a lot of people do they still like my husband has no idea that any of this stuff exists he just he just like goes through his life um, he has like um, zero self-attention and he's like the most psychologically well person that I know because he just he doesn't care he doesn't think about it he like was raised in a little village on a Greek island in the middle of nowhere um, and the whole therapy culture just <laughs> passed him by completely um, so at the, at the most I would say like um, cultivating excessive self-attention is not good that's the most that I would say but my main interest is in this um, story that we're telling about human beings, about the causes of social problems um, and about our inability to move beyond the present. Yeah, um, I, I, you know, not ending my tendency to cultivate uh, self-attention. You know, that's asking that's asking a lot, but I, 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 I do agree with you. We've been talking for about 48 minutes. Um, that's a, a good length for a diet soap podcast, but I want to ask you, Ashley, if you could come back in about 10 minutes and we could do a second half, a live stream, as if it's a Sublation Magazine show, um, for uh, the patrons. And this week, because it is um, on a Wednesday and, uh, you know, because it's part of the kind of a crossover with diet soap, uh, people, the patrons who signed up for $5 or more will be able to get access to the second stream. Um, I want to talk to you about, you know, you raised it here at the end about um, the way in which this psychological imagination is applied to uh, indigenous people um, mm -hmm. a little bit, maybe in, in the live stream. And, uh, and that will be our jumping off point. So, um, uh, but uh, yeah, so right now um, I'm going to say thank you to everybody in the chat uh, and for everybody who's watching and um, we'll see you over on Patreon. That's patreon.com backslash diet soap. And uh, with that, I will hit oh, the Oh, someone's button. asking, where are they? Patreon.com slash diet soap. <laughs> Everybody, come on over. Patreon, I'll put it in right now. <laughs> patreon.com backslash diet soap. And uh, yeah, so thanks for watching. See you in 10 minutes. In the case of nuclear or radiological fallout, people living around potential targets such as military bases 